Great to be with you this morning. We're going to continue to the book of Matthew. Talking about <clears throat> marriage, divorce, and singleness. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for another opportunity to worship with your people. Thank you for another opportunity to hear from you. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning for your word, Lord Jesus. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. Help us trust you, Lord. Help us obey you, no matter how hard it is, no matter how it's different from our culture, society. And God, I pray for our marriages, God. Pray we keep them strong, Pray we keep them holy. Pray that you would help us to glorify you in the way we love one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19. I'm talking about marriage, divorce, and singleness. This is another sermon that no pastor wakes up thinking, I want to preach on that today. But that's why I preach through the Bible. That's why we have to reckon with what Jesus says it's no secret that um, the breakdown of the family leads to all kinds of problems. I mean, even secular sociological studies have shown the detriment that happens when families break down, when marriages break down, both within the family itself and within broader society. And, of course, there's more than just sociology involved. Uh, The Bible says God created marriage. God established marriage. There's a covenant taking place, which is why um, marriages, whether most people realize it or not, come from a Christian background, a Christian worldview. There's a reason why our vows, even even non-Christians who make wedding vows, typically, whether they realize it or not, are using vows that have grown up out of the Christian tradition. When we say things like, for better or worse, for richer or poor, till death do us part, as long as we both shall live, that's Christian marriage. As a lifelong, as the biblical understanding of a lifelong covenant and commitment to one another. It's possible, and I'm suggesting that it's true, that marriage is more sacred than most of us ever imagined. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is talk about marriage, divorce, and singleness. From Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother? And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, 
but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, to receive this, receive it. The word of God may be seated. So we're going to explore this um, passage here under three headings. Number one, the glory of one flesh. The glory of one flesh. Number two, the grief of hard hearts. The grief of hard hearts. And number three, the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness. First, the glory of one flesh. The glory of one flesh. So I just want us to think about this here. We find ourselves in the waning days of Jesus' ministry, okay? The people are as polarized as ever concerning him. Jesus is making his final approach to Jerusalem. Large crowds are flocking to him in messianic fervor. uh, And this is going to culminate in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the uh, donkey colt as the king of of the kingdom. And while the common people's hopes are on the rise, in large part with false expectations, at the same time, uh, Jesus' opposition begins to reach its peak as well. And in the midst of all this, Jesus' own heart is torn because Jesus knows his mission. Jesus has been warning his disciples that the Son of Man must be handed over and crucified and buried and on the third day rise from the dead. And so we have excitement on one side, burning enmity on the other, and Jesus is concerned about something different than all of them. He's worried about the the true mission that God sent him to do, and that is atone for the sins of the world through his own crucifixion and death. And so it's in this context that we find Jesus again in another controversy with the Pharisees. Okay, so they're always testing him. They're always trying to catch him and trap him in something that he might say in order that they might accuse him. And I imagine that this this had to be extremely exhausting for Jesus. They ask him this question, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The question is interesting. It brings Jesus Right into the middle of, uh, from what we can tell, a a pre-existing debate among the Jews in that day. And virtually every commentator notes how there were essentially two schools of thought 
among the Jews in that day, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Now, those of the school of Hillel, teacher Hillel, uh, were markedly lax in their restrictions on divorce. In fact, there's some ze- uh, almost to the point that there were no restrictions at all. Um, one uh, teacher uh, along this stream of the Hillel school, okay, somewhere along that stream, stated that it was permissible to divorce your wife if she burnt the supper. <laughs> A lot of divorces. <laughs> the school of Shammai was considerably more conservative, much more closer to Jesus in this regard. Uh, they agreed that divorce was permissible for what only for what Moses called something indecent from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we're going to talk about that passage at length a little bit longer. But they disagreed over what that something indecent might include. So Jesus, interestingly... When asked about this question, apparently most of the Jews in that day, when they were talking about divorce, they turned to Deuteronomy chapter 24, as we're going to talk about later. But when Jesus is asked that question, Jesus does not turn first to Deuteronomy to deal with the question of marriage. He turns to Genesis to deal with the question of marriage. In other words, for Jesus... God's intention for marriage is seen in creation. And so, and so, first of all, note that Jesus is turning to Scripture with regards to marriage. So if you want to understand marriage, you have to go to the Bible. Because that's where Jesus goes to understand marriage. Scripture is the ultimate authority about what marriage is. We don't get to redefine marriage. We don't get to make up new definitions of marriage. For example, that it's a, a man with a man or a woman with a woman. We, that, that is not in our ability to define. God gets to define marriage. Because it's God is the one who has created marriage. And Jesus turns to Genesis to answer their questions about marriage and divorce. And this is what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. What this tells you, then, is that God essentially created humanity with marriage in mind. That doesn't mean you have to... That doesn't mean everybody has to get married, but it does mean that built into the fundamental, the fundamental nature in which humans were created, they were created with marriage in mind. We know that because man, we know that because God created man, humanity, male and female, right? He created a gender binary. He didn't just create man. He created man and woman. And we read that story a little bit early about how he did that. And he did that for a purpose, right? Because when God created man, what did, what did God command humanity to do? Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Exercise dominion over it. 
The implication there being, as, as image bearers of God, right, is that as they multiplied and spread and filled the earth, guess what? Then the earth would be filled with the image of God. So humanity was created in such a way to fulfill the function for which God created man to, uh, for, and that is to spread the image and glory of God over all the earth. And built in, essential to that capacity, to that function, is the capacity to procreate, which is only possible through man and woman. And, and, and we see then that, that man and woman are created different. Different is not bad. Different is different. And it's, it's, it's interesting that we live in a cultural moment where to say that is highly offensive. But man and woman are different. God made them that way for a purpose, and they're complementary. That means they go together. They fit together so that together they can fulfill what God's purpose was for them. God created uh, the woman by taking, him, by taking her out of a man. And then you'll notice immediately that he creates woman by taking her out of man. And then he says that in marriage, through the consummative act of marriage, the two then become one flesh. So in other words, humans are, are both are two and one in a sense. They're, male and female are different, but in marriage, they reunite into one flesh. And so mankind, though distinctly gendered, in marriage still form a unity, male and female united as image bearers for God. And this one flesh relationship, as God designed it, and as Jesus sees it, is, is huge, it's profound, it's deep. I mean, that's, that's G- Jesus derives his ethic on divorce from this one passage and primarily from this one verse. The two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, therefore, let not man put asunder. In other words, in the in marriage and in the consummative act of marriage, two people literally become one flesh. And it's so deep and it's so profound that Jesus, and, and Jesus acknowledges here, he says, what God has joined together. In other words, Jesus sees that this, this, the union of man and woman in, in marriage is not, we see, we think of marriage, well, it's my decision, so I can, if I made it, I can break it, I can do whatever I want. Jesus says, if you were married, God united you. Not you. You, you were part of it, but God united you. It wasn't just a human decision. A supernatural act has taken place in which two people have become one. In the sight of God. The one flesh union, I think, is deeper and more serious and more profound than we ever imagined. Especially more than the culture could ever conceive of. It's worked by God himself. It's supernatural to become one. Which is why in ancient Israel. Which is why in ancient Israel. The... the, that one flesh union was taken so seriously under God's law and in God's command that any, you can go back and read it, any sexual act that violated a marriage in the Old Testament law was a capital crime. Capital crime. 
So my, my point is simply this, that we as a church must remember the glory of one flesh. The glory and the, pro, the profundity of marriage. And to recommit with all our strength, ardor, energy, and ferocity to do everything we can to live, to have, if we're married, to have marriages that please God. It's that important. Satan hates marriages. He hates them. You're going to have to work and forgive and be patient and be understanding and deny yourself to follow Jesus. You have to deny, your, you have to deny yourself to follow Jesus at all. You think you're not going to have to deny yourself in your marriage? But the one thing but this, I'm telling you, this is, this, is, this is going to become increasingly insane to the world. People faithful to their spouses. And so I'm telling you, we have a, a, great, an, a great and profound opportunity to show to the world the glory and the difference that Christ makes in our lives by our faithfulness and our joy in our marriages. It's number one, the glory of one flesh. Number two, the grief of hard hearts. He said, why then, they, they, they said, Jesus, uh, said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the Pharisees are not content to let Jesus' response to go unchallenged because in their mind, they have a scripture. They have a scripture verse that says, hey, look, God allowed divorce right here. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay? Okay? But in... And they ask a good question, okay? If, if man isn't supposed to separate what God joined together, why did Moses uh, command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, is that what Moses was saying? Well, let's look. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what the text says. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you read the passage carefully, what I think you'll discover is this. Is that the passage actually nowhere commands divorce like the Pharisees assumed that it did. In fact, nowhere does the passage even give a positive spin on divorce. 
All the passage actually does is it gives instructions about what should happen in a case, in a very specific case, in which a divorce has taken place. Okay? About, you know, whether remarriage to the original spouse is possible. Okay? That's all it does. Okay? And so, now, when Jesus looks at this passage, okay, so the passage does, of course, assume divorce. It assumes divorce has taken place, and then it gives instructions about what to do in this very specific case, okay? And Moses and and Jesus, in fact, does interpret this passage as saying that Moses permitted divorce according to their hardness of heart. But a reluctant permission is is a far thing from a command, Okay. Reluctant permission is far thing from a, a command. And it, seems to, and it seems to me that the passage rightly read actually was to, was to serve as a discouragement from divorce. And the reason why that's clear is because the point is, is that when it comes to remarriage, just like thousands of years ago, the same thing today. When it comes to divorce and remarriage, most people want divorce because they anticipate marrying somebody else. And what this passage actually does is it puts a, it puts a limitation on, on who that remarriage can take place to, namely, not to the original spouse, okay? And so in other words, in limiting who can be remarried to, who you can be remarried to, it actually is discouraging divorce. In other words, it's saying, if you like that spouse, you need to stay with her. You can't just divorce and marry at will like it's not a big deal. And so if anything, this passage discourages divorce. But the main point is that Jesus understands that creation intention takes precedent over law permission. Let me say that again. Creation intention takes precedent over law permission. It was because of the hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. While the Old Testament law was good for what it intended to do, it still didn't take people back to the height of the purpose for which marriage was created. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ who have been recreated into the image of God, behold, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us, then we can attain to the creation intention of God in our marriages. The law still accounts for people's hardness of heart, but as such, Jesus said it shouldn't be taken on the final word or the height of the ethic that we're supposed to hold to in our marriages. And that's where Jesus says this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so now looking at this passage, we dive into one of the most complex and heated debates in Christian ethics. And as I've studied this passage, my view has actually changed on this. Even since the last sermon I preached on this was in Matthew 5.32. So I'm actually going to be saying something different than I said the last time I preached a similar passage to this. Okay, And I don't take my change of view lightly, but I have been persuaded. Okay, So last time... So for a long time, I don't mind saying this, and I don't, I don't fault people who, who still believe this, but I, for, so for a long, long time, I held the view of no divorce, no remarriage. 
held that view for a long time. That view still has merit. It's still strong. But, but I've been persuaded that Jesus in this passage does give one legitimate exception to marriage, to, to divorce and remarriage. And I'm going to explain why my view has changed on that. Okay. If you look at all the parallel passages, there are four different places where Jesus says very similar but slightly different things. I'm going to read all of them to you. Matthew 19.9 in our passage today says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Okay? Mark 10, 11 and 12 says, And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay? Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Then finally, Matthew 5, 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. So this is, this is why I've changed my view. Because we have to deal with Matthew's exception clause. The Gospel of Matthew, in the two places where he says it's almost the same thing, Matthew's the only one who gives an exception clause. Luke doesn't do it. Mark doesn't do it. But I think we have to take the exception clause seriously and try to understand what Jesus is saying here. So the thing that ultimately persuaded me is that Jesus is that Jesus is addressing, he's actually not addressing the issue of remarriage. He's addressing the issue of divorce. Okay? He's addressing the issue of divorce. And he's explaining why it is that people shouldn't get divorced, right? That's the whole context of the passage. Why is that people shouldn't get divorced? So in addition to the creation account, he's giving another reason why people should not get divorced. And his reason, and, and if you, all those p- verses that I just read, if you, co- if you read all of them together at the same time and you compare them together, the common thread that ties all of them together in Jesus' addressing of divorce, not remarriage, but he's d- d- addressing divorce, the common thread is this. The threat, his argument is you should not get a divorce because assumed in divorce is remarriage and the remarriage constitutes adultery. That's Jesus' belief. Okay? And that's, that's, it's clear. So Jesus is saying you should not get a divorce because divorce leads to remarriage and remarriage is adultery. So what does that have to do with the exception then? Well, I believe... I believe the exception that if that's what Jesus is doing with the argument, hopefully you can follow this. If that's what Jesus is doing with the argument, then the exception clause only makes sense if it's an exception both to divorce and to remarriage. That is that the reason why Jesus gives for not getting a divorce is that if you remarry, that's adultery. So if there's an exception to that, the only exception to that, the only way the argument would make sense in the exception clause is if he's saying the only way an exception would make sense is if a divorce which led to a remarriage in a certain case would not be adultery. Does that make sense? 
Okay, it might not make sense. Go back and listen to the sermon and, and think about it. It'll make sense. The only way the exception clause would work in the argument is if there was an exception in which the remarriage didn't constitute adultery. Then it would be an exception to divorce. Okay? That's the only way that the argument would make sense. So in other words, the, the exception, it, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to just accept, say, you can get a divorce but not get remarriage because the argument is the remarriage is the problem because it causes adultery. So if the remarriage, the only way the exception makes sense is if the remarriage doesn't cause adultery. And then the divorce would be permissible because the remarriage is assumed in the, in the divorce. So anyways, I don't know if that makes sense, but go back and listen to it and Lord willing, it'll make sense. So the point is this. I believe I have been persuaded that Jesus is giving one legitimate ground for divorce and remarriage, namely sexual morality. That's it. And by the way, this was still more radical than Jesus' contemporaries. And it's a lot more radical than what most people believe today. And why, and we have to ask the question, Chad, if you're right, why would this be the case? Why would this be the case? Well, I think the reason why this one particular issue would be the case, and this is, I mean, this isn't, I mean, I can't, I can't nail this in stone, but I just, it seems reasonable to me for this reason. Because of what I said earlier. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look, any sexual immorality that violated a marriage covenant was a capital crime. So think about it like this. That's how serious God viewed marriage, okay, and the sanctity of marriage. So if you were an Old Testament Jew and the law was strictly kept, the law was strictly kept, okay, in the Old Testament. Let's say you were an Old Testament Jew and the law was strictly kept and your spouse committed some kind of sexual morality against you. You would be free to remarry. Why? Because your spouse would be dead. Because they would be capitally punished for their crime. Right? See what I'm saying? So anyone, any Old Testament Jew who, if the law was strictly kept in that regard, who was sinned against by sexual morality, they would automatically be free to remarry because if the law was kept, their spouse would be killed. Because that was a capital crime. So I think Jesus is picking up on that Old Testament reality and he's saying, this is the only exception. This is the only exception. To it, And effectively what he's doing is he, he's getting rid of the death penalty in that regard because he's saying the church, does not, the church is not a, a government. We don't have the capacity as, as in Old Testament Israel to, 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 to place that kind of punishment on somebody, but they have effectively killed themselves with respect to the marriage due to sexual morality. So I believe that Jesus gives one legitimate ground and exception and that is sexual immorality. Now, I just want to, and I just want to say this to you. I just, my, my view on that has changed because of the scripture. Not because, not because of any weakening in my part of what I believe the Bible teaches about marriage. And I say that because my fear is that some people are going to hear this and say, I can get a divorce now. And if that's your view, let me tell you something. You're missing the point. Just because Jesus permits something doesn't mean he's telling you you should do it. And in fact, one of the greatest and most important pictures in the Bible 
is that the people of God and, and God, we relate to God as the people of God as husband and wife. That is one of the clearest and most beautiful and most profound pictures in the Bible. And if you read the Old Testament, the prophets indicted Israel over and over for doing what? For being unfaithful to their husband. By committing adultery, which spiritually speaking is idolatry. And so over and over, if you will, Israel as a nation cheated against God. Cheated on God. But the climax of the Old Testament prophetic word is that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God was going to take her back. God was going to restore her. God was going to redeem her despite her unfaithfulness. So I would argue that the greatest picture and act of love in the Bible is God loving a, God loving a people who don't deserve it. And so I just want to say that even in the case of a marriage where there is sexual immorality, you don't have to get divorced. And in fact, it may be that God would restore that marriage and it will be the greatest picture, the picture the Bible itself gives of God's love for his people. And that is loving an unfaithful spouse. All divorce involves sin, but not every divorce is sin. Divorce grieves God's heart. It's always painful. It's it's always because of hardness of heart. And so, as we think about this passage, again, I just want to remind us of the sanctity of marriage, the glory of marriage, the significance of marriage. And for us to uphold it in our lives. Finally, uh, the last thing I want to talk about this morning is the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. You see, the disciples understand that Jesus is, has a very high view of marriage. Only one exception, okay? And so the disciples, now get this, they say, well, if that's the case, if I can't, if that's the, if I only have, if that's the only way I could ever get out of marriage and otherwise I'm stuck, it's better for a man not to marry. How would you like to be married to one of those guys? What's interesting, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't disagree with them. He doesn't disagree with them. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus said, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And so the disciples are stunned. But Jesus is telling them, uh, he, he, he takes this point to make a point he, about singleness, okay? And interestingly, and, and, and so what Jesus is, is, is saying here is that even though marriage is, the, you know, the, the, 
You know, mo- on average, most people will get married or want to get married or things like that. But he's saying, but that's not the only way to be in the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says, it's not, it's not, marriage is not even necessarily the best way to serve in the kingdom of God. But singleness, he's saying, is for many people a hard pill to swallow. And not everyone can receive it. But who can't, but he who is able to receive it, let him receive it. People, Jesus says, remain single for various reasons. Now, of course, technically speaking, a eunuch was somebody, in most cases, who was castrated. Okay? And a eunuch, for example, might be a high-level royal official within a, within a kingdom. And the reason you can imagine why kings might have eunuchs as part of their high-level officials, because such men, especially eunuchs, would work, for example, in the book of Esther, it was a eunuch who worked with the king's harem. And you could imagine why a eunuch would probably be the best person to serve in that capacity. Okay? And so eunuchs would oftentimes hold high-level royal positions and things like that. But that was a high price to pay, especially in ancient times when the ability to leave offspring and to leave where, where one's life was basically uh, considered uh, extinguished if one did not have a family line to leave behind. And so singleness was even drastically more severe seen as a curse in ancient times even than it is today. But Jesus says something totally different. He gives a new category for singleness. He says not everybody is single for the same reason. Some are unwillingly eunuchs, unwillingly single. Some are made eunuchs by others. Some have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. That is, some people willingly choose to be single for the kingdom of God. And actually, Paul makes the same exact argument and actually encourages, not that it's for everybody, just as Jesus is saying here, but Paul actually encourages single people to say, hey, if you can stay single, then just stay single. You know, lots of single, I mean, I love marriage. I love marriage. Marriage is great. Marriage is awesome. But I just feel like sometimes some single people think, if I'm not married, I'm not human. Or if I'm not married, then I can't be satisfied in life. And let me just talk to some married people. It's not as easy as it looks. And the fact that there's so many divorces should tell you that it isn't always what it's made out to be. I wish it was, but it's not always that way. And some people think, if, some single people think, if I just get married, it'll solve all my problems. I just say, it might not. It might cause you a lot more problems. And then if you're going to be faithful to God, then guess what? You're going to be faithful to that marriage no matter how hard it gets. It might be better to stay single. And Paul, again, actually commends that by saying, hey, you know what? If you're single, then guess what? If you're married, you got family, kids, wife to worry about. But if you're single, you're free to serve God in whatever capacity you want. God calls you, pack up, go. Go wherever you want. Serve the Lord. You're free. Whereas married people have a lot more concerns to worry about. And so in other words, singleness can be a hard pill to swallow for some people, but it's not a bad thing. In fact, in many cases, it's a great thing. And in fact, there are many people who willingly choose to be single for the sake of the kingdom of God, and they will have their reward. 
but it's a gift, and him who can receive it should receive it. So, as we close this morning, what have we talked about? The glory of one flesh, the grief of hard hearts, and the gift of singleness. Marriage is sacred. It's holy. It's serious. And so that's why I encourage everybody to, as Christians, we must remember to to take it seriously. We should look different from the world in this regard. We should look different from the world in this regard. Because if nothing else, Jesus says that marriage exists. God created marriage as a picture of Christ and the church. How did Christ love his church? He gave himself for her. He sacrificed himself for her. He died for her. And the church loves and trusts and submits to Christ. That's the picture our marriages are supposed to display to the world. And when it's done well and when it's done right, there is nothing more beautiful than a healthy marriage. And so let's pray and ask God to help us in our marriages if you're married. And I just want to say this morning, as I close, if your marriage is struggling, don't just suffer in silence. Tell somebody. Get help. I'll be glad to help you any way I can. I know other people who can help you. Struggling, look, every marriage has problems. But if you're struggling, get help before it's too late. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to go in a certain way. It doesn't have to, to end. But, if you, but the longer you wait, the harder it's going to get before you get help. There's no need to be ashamed. Seek help while you still can. And above all, remember this. Marriage points to Christ. Christ loved an unfaithful people. He loved me when I didn't deserve it. I just want to say this morning, whether you've ever been married or not, whether you ever will get married or not, if you're here in this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you, you've known no love unless you've known the love of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you have the best marriage in the world, you have not known love unless you know the love of Jesus Christ. Because only the love of Jesus Christ loves you at your worst. And when you have known the love of Christ at your worst, it's only then that you can love other people at their worst. And that's the only thing that can sustain a marriage. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the holiness and the sanctity of marriage. Lord Jesus, I pray for every marriage in this room. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would keep each spouse holy, faithful, humble, loving, self-sacrificing, outdoing one another and showing honor. I pray that we would be slow to, uh, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry, quick to forgive, quick to repent, quick to confess our sins. Quick, God, to uh, get help where we need it, God. And I pray that you would fill the marriages in this room with such holy joy and faith and oneness and unity.
that it wouldn't even make sense to an unbelieving world. And Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that if there's someone who does not know your boundless love, I pray that they would find it this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.